Welcome back. I am here with David Flynn. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to talk about his firsthand account of his experiences in the Falkland War, which are fascinating. David, welcome and thank you for sharing this experience. No problem. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Right. Oh, it's a fairly lengthy story. It started off uh, when I was 16, I joined the Royal Marines. It seemed like a good idea at the time. That was back in uh, 1969. I was in the Marines for 13 years, up until uh, 1982. During that time, I did this and that, some, some good bits, some a little less good. I did a couple of tours of Northern Ireland during the Troubles, which was a whole bunch of not fun. I, I, I was actually thinking about that because you're you were like basically in the Royal Marines during the probably the most active part of that whole situation. I, I mean, if, if you don't mind, I'd love like learning learning more about it and and be as free as you can because I this is more oh, about not, like not, fascination not. and like that because yeah, go ahead. Not a problem. I, as I say, I did two tours of Northern Ireland. I was also over in Dhaka when the country there changed its name from East Pakistan to Bangladesh during the Bangladeshi independence uh, oh, back wow. in 71. The ship I was on was near, and when the things kicked off, the Marines from the ship were sent to the embassy there to make sure that it didn't spill over into there. So I got a front seat view of Bangladeshi independence. And I did three months in 76 in Lebanon during the civil war there in Beirut, which not fun. But on the plus side, I got paid to learn to ski up in northern Norway. I spent a, a couple of years over in Nepal recruiting just for the British Army, which was a wonderful place, lovely people. Shame I had to leave. But so, so pluses and minuses. Come 1982, and then there was the Falklands. You deployed so, to the Falklands? I was indeed, yes. Um, oh, my Lord. Uh, command, commanded a, uh, a troop, number two troop, Kilo Company, 42 Commando. We, we went down south, did what uh, had to be done. We took Mount Harriet there, and while I was busy making sure that my boys were uh, undercover, I forgot to be undercover myself. An artillery shell went off fairly close to me, and that was the end of my interest in the uh, Falklands. Fairly badly injured. Quite luckily, by chance, there was a nurse at the aid station who patched me up and kept me together. Was with me on the hospital ship on the way back, and by the time we'd reached England, we were engaged. So <laughs> Mills and Boone rejected the, store, the, the, the concept as being too unrealistic. I have so many questions. I mean, you just you just unpacked so many different things. Okay, let's let, let's go to the Falklands conflict first. So, how did you know as it started building up? If you just give, because again, there's the majority of my audience is American. So, if you could give them a sense of even the like the broader strategic picture, how did it how did it start? How how was the how did the British get involved? Because Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at the time, right? That's correct. Yes, during the, the her time, uh, Falklands. is a British territory. It had been established way back in the 1833, I think it is, but th thereabouts when it was at the time an uninhabited rock. British uh, settlers settled there, stayed there. Argentina, come 1982, was having financial difficulties. It had a military dictatorship running things. There was lots of internal problems. In order to distract from the internal problems, they decided to uh, claim the what they called the Malvinas, what we call the Falklands, 
and invaded with a large force. That was back in right at the start of April 82. At the time, were there any British forces on the island when they invaded? There was a, there was a troop. There was about 30 Royal Marines as a nominal guard on there. And how many, how many, roughly how many forces did they invade with? They, in, in the thousands, the, the net Argentine military presence at the end when we went down south was about 10,000. I'm not sure how many actually invaded at the time, but it was in the, in the thousands. So it, that, that little one-sided number-wise. So you were outnumbered, at least the the Royal Marines on the island, about yeah. 30, and you were th- like thousands of Argentine forces. So they're, they land on the island or they're making their way to the island? And then what happens they, after they that? Ma- what happened was they made their way to the island. They captured the key points on the island. Uh, they captured the Marines that were there. The governor of the island, basically, once it became clear that further resistance was just going to lead to deaths uh, issued a surrender. And the Argentines uh, captured the island back in on the first or the second day of that invasion. And, and what, how many British citizens were, were on the island and were there any Argenti- Argentine or Argentine, and I don't want to pronounce that, citizens? Like, what was, right. what was that mix like? The population of the Falklands is, at the time was around between two and 3,000. The Falklands itself consists of two islands. It's roughly the size of Wales, so it's pretty. It's pretty empty. I'm trying to think, uh, what in America would be about the size of Wales, uh, Maine? Okay, yeah. So you're you're, you're looking at about a population of three thousand for the state of Maine. And then, what was the composition? Were they all British citizens? Were they was yes, a small percentage all British? British? Citizens. Um, they've since had a referendums on whether they want to be British, whether they want to be Argentinian, whether they want to be themselves. Three people voted for being Argentinian. The rest voted that they wanted to be British. I mean, it was. If you just saw the numbers, you'd think this is a fixed result, but. But they're British citizens. They have been, it's been British since the 1830s. Quite frankly, they feel more British than most British people. Are they mostly English speaking or do they yes, speak Spanish? Entire, it's, it's entirely English uh, speaking. I mean, heavily dialect, but that you expect. Yeah, it's, it's not Spanish speaking in any size, shape or form. Okay, so it would be like Mexico trying to come in and... I'm trying to think of, you know, it, this is a terrible analogy, but like seize like a town in Minnesota or something like that. Not, you know, in te- Texas, there's plenty of Hispanics and things like that. So that wouldn't necessarily translate. But it was yeah. like just a um, pure British population yes, where they I mean, just came and seized it's territory. Purely British. It, I mean, it's odd because it's an island that's 8,000 miles from Britain and only a couple of hundred from Argentina, which, of course, is why Argentina thinks it belongs to them. I mean, my personal view is that it belongs to whoever the people who live there want to belong to. If they, mm. want, to, if they want to be Falkland Islanders with independence, good luck to them. If they want to be British, good luck to them. If they want to be Argentine, good luck to them. Okay. Um, All right. So, so the, Argent, the Argentines send a huge force. They take over the island in about two days, then what? Then, basically, they set up camp. All hell breaks loose back in England, where, first of all, people are trying to find out where the Falklands are. For for, for most people, uh, you you say, before 1982, if you said the Falklands, they would have shrugged their shoulders and said, what, where? No one really knew where it was. They found it on, on a map. But the principle had been that it had been taken by force. There had been a a defence. It was an invasion to capture sovereign territory, which is strangely relevant today. Right. Um, Exactly. Exactly. 
Although the Russians have more in common ethnically with the Ukrainians than the the, Argent, yes. the Argentines had with the British or the people of that island. Yeah. Okay. All right. So all hell breaks loose in England. Then what? Then the political decision is made that to send a task force to retake the islands and basically to demonstrate to Argentina that Britain is serious about this. While the task force is being formed, and in a which was done in a great deal of hurry, the invasion was on the 1st of April. Uh, by the 3rd of April, we were sailing. So you can imagine how quickly it was. One of the people from my troop had got married on the 31st of March, was about to go on his uh, honeymoon there when it was the, oh, no, you're not, you're coming with, down south with us. He whinged the entire time throughout the campaign that he thought he had better things to do, fight on a windswept rock in the uh, middle of the bloody Atlantic. But, you know, that's the job. Soldiers yeah. and Marines he, he, do and he, say, he, he right? He whinged the entire time, but then everyone whinged about everything. So, But while we were sailing south, the United Nations, all the statesmen around the world, were busy trying to find a peaceful solution to this all, which founded on the rock that Britain's red line was there can be no talks while the Argentines have got a military presence on the island. The Argentine military forces have to leave before we were prepared to talk about anything. And the Argentines said that we have taken this island, this island belongs to us, we will keep our military forces on uh, this place if we want to. And that there were lots of talks. Haig, one of the American, uh, I think, General Haig, probably the Secretary of State at the time, I bet. Secretary of State did a lot of incredible work trying to uh, bridge the gap, trying to get an agreement to do it, which all founded basically because the the two red lines couldn't meet. So. Down south, we uh, trundled. Public back home were getting a bit upset because they didn't realise that it took takes time for ships to sail 8,000 8, miles. 8,000 miles. So, now, were you on a aircraft carrier? Like, how did you get? How did you get down there? Uh, I I I, I travelled on the luxury liner Canberra. The formation of the task force was whatever was available. Things like aircraft carriers, they were warships, and so they didn't want uh, lots of Marines clogging the place up. We had two specialist ships for carrying Marines, fearless and intrepid, what, what they call commando ships. They, they were designed to transport carriers. They could carry two battalions, one battalion each. Fortunately, there were three commando battalions and two paratroop battalions that were going down. And Five into two doesn't go. So various liners were requisitioned to help carry. There was a Canberra. Gander went down as a hospital ship. There was one of the Queen, I think Queen Elizabeth liner. But basically luxury liners were requisitioned and went down. Now, who crewed the ships? Like, did you have civilians oh, crewing the, the ships? The, 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 the standard people who were there normally, the civilian crews. <laughs> so um, the British government commandeered a luxury liner and had the crews, civilians who were employed by a luxury liner, steer steer themselves into a war zone. Is that is that correct? That, that, Basically, yes. I mean, they got rid of... Um, this uh, this is what I love about the, the British. This is what I love about the British. It's just the stiff upper but, lip, right? <laughs> but um, but the, the, the people actually driving the ship were, were from the Merchant uh, Navy, were uh, basically... Well, there's no basically. They were uh, civilians who were uh, doing a job. To be fair, they did get extra pay for it. But, yeah, it was different for them. <laughs> were they were, were they whinging too, or were they were they okay? That the, they they were okay. Um, I think they were quite excited at being part of something quite special. And of course, they didn't really have 
the experience or the knowledge to know what being in a war zone might actually mean. Yeah, my first thought was artillery from the shoreline, you know, going after them, but they probably did. They probably didn't even enter into their heads. Yeah, I mean that they didn't. Um, I mean they were basically just continuing to do their job of moving people from one place to another. It's just that this time the place they were going to what well, wasn't quite as secure as most. But okay, uh, yeah. So we trundled on down southwards while Haig was trundling between London, New York, and uh, Buenos Aires to try and sort something out and ending up failing. Then we reached the uh, Falklands, and that, that's when things, that, that's when the war actually started proper as far as we were concerned. Okay, so you're on this luxury cruise liner. Yeah. How do you make the transition from that cruise liner to land? Right. The actual landings were on the first day were done by the uh, two battalions that of were in the uh, specialist ships for them. All, all D, very D-Day style landing craft, special forces going ahead to clear the beaches, make sure that uh, sites overlooking the beach weren't occupied. It was pure D-Day. I, I missed all of that because I was uh, there, there was room for two battalions and the battalion I was in wasn't required. So two, so two as battalions, we call them commandos, but it's easier for people to understand. Okay, so so two commandos slash battalion equivalent units yeah. of Marine, Royal Marines, seize the Seize certain seize, points. Seize, seize the landing sites. And, and, and then what about the paratroopers? What are the par- by um in a by civilized boats, and basically got ferried ashore, where we promptly did our imitation of moles and dug in, because we knew that air attacks would be coming fairly soon. That that was the next phase of the war. Who had air superiority at the time? It's difficult to say. We had well, the the the, the had fact that you said carriers, but they were relatively close at hand. They had a lot more planes, but they had to come all the way from Argentina across. So, flight time numbers wise, it probably was roughly fifty fifty. They they could do a surge and get a lot of planes in in over the area but they couldn't keep them up for long. Our Harriers were, because they were on the carriers, which were kept a bit further out, and there was a lot of argument afterwards, did they need to be so far back? But hindsight's a wonderful thing. And the reasoning at the time was, if we lose a carrier, we're stuffed. Yeah, so I don't, even, I don't even think hindsight... I don't even think hindsight is 2020 is an excuse. I mean, I, I think I think any competent military commander would make that decision, you know, every single day. Well, the other, the other thing I think that's important for folks to understand is in every conflict that I think the U.S. has ever been involved in when there was air power, maybe with the exception of World War One, we've always had air superiority. So yeah. the US military is not is not accustomed to looking up at the skies because we always control them. What's interesting about the Falklands or the Falkland Island campaign is that it was, you know, even 50-50 is a completely different experience. It changed your tactics. The fact that you dug in not because you were worried about the, you know the infantry coming in, it was mainly because of air power is something that yeah, uh, you know, U.S. military officers don't even think have to think about. So, okay, so you get there, you dig in, then what? Right, there's the lengthy process that, in order to, uh, the landing was done in San Carlos Bay, which is right over on the left-hand side of the island. The capital and the important part is on the other, right on the other side of the island. So we're, now, when you, now when you say left hand side of the island, the um, the west, uh, we okay. land on the west on the west side of the main island. Stanley and all the important settlements are over on the 
uh, east side of the island. And the west um, side, that's closest to? One that's closest Argentina? to Argentina. Okay. All right. Um, Sorry. I just wanted to establish that for the audience. Yes. So the reason we landed there was simply that the first priority was to get the troops ashore safely. American military strategy at the time would have been to basically to do uh, an opposed landing at Stanley and have the whole thing done and dusted within a couple of days. It would have meant heavier casualties for those days, but it would be all over quickly. The American military, of course, have the firepower and the resources to enable that to work. We didn't have that, so we had to land where they weren't, which meant right on the other side of the island. And we didn't have enough helicopter lift, so we were going to have to carry it, pick it up, pick pick up the stuff and walk across. The Falkland Islands is a peat bog. There are mountains here and there. Oh, I have memories. Like, it's just, it's infantry shit. It's infantry shit. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. Tanks sink. You, you, you yeah. can't operate anything other than very light tanks in there because they sink. Trucks sink. There's only a handful of tracks around the place. You, you, you walk across the island, and for the most part, every step you sink between knee and ankle deep in, into the muck, and you move on. What was the, what was the weather like, temperature-wise, it, it, precipitation? It, it, it's it's winter. There's nothing between you and the Antarctic. Cold is extremely cold. So when it wasn't raining, it was snowing, and you got winds. The the winds typically come straight off the Antarctic at winter. Yeah. It, well, again, that's also rain. important to establish is that since this was in April when this was happening, you're you are moving into because you're in the southern hemisphere into winter yep. so again just you're, for the you're audience to, in, you're, you're coming into winter there's so many uh, factors that people who are looking at the outside aren't even considering like I, when i went to this interview i wasn't even considering that because i'm like it's kind of springtime because i'm used to the northern hemisphere but you're fighting in the southern hemisphere and you're moving into into winter okay go ahead sorry to you know, yeah no no worries so the first order that we first thing that we had to do was to get the supplies from the ships to the shore Meantime, the Argentinian Air Force, realising that we were trying to get stuff shore, uh, sent in waves to attack the ships in San Carlos Bay. The Royal Navy basically placed a string of ships as a defensive shield around them. The Argentinian pilots had to choose between either attacking the warships or flying over the warships to attack the merchant ships busy unloading. They decided primarily to attack the warships on the basis that uh, flying over a warship that's shooting at you isn't a whole bunch of fun. So that they dealt with that, which was strategically stupid. Stupid. If, right. if, if they took out the if they took out the ships, the stores, game over. We're, there's there's nothing much you can do if you if if you haven't got food or weapons, you're you're not going to do a lot of good. So that 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 was that phase of the operation. San Carlos Bay became imaginatively known as Bomb Alley, and it was busy basically getting uh, shores to land, dodging aircraft whizzing overhead, and trying not to think about what was going to come up. So that, that, that was that phase of the operation. By this point, uh, the viewers back home were getting uh, bored, so... <laughs> Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Only it's probably worse nowadays. Because yeah. so, th- so there was being there was prompting from on high to Brigadier Thompson, who was in command of the Marines and Paras who were leading it, to get a move on. And he was, you don't get to be a brigadier by being a shrinking violet. And he uh, basically said he'll go when he's ready um, yeah. to go. 
All right, just, just to stop right here, just to give folks a, si a sense of the scale. So there were five commandos, which was you know five huh. battalions five, of Marines. Five, five commandos, about 3,000 troops in the Marines and paras, paratroopers. Oh, that's everything. So that, that, Yeah, so that was there. You have a similar sort of number crewing the ships. And there was a couple of extra units coming along. The Scots and Irish Guards, Gurkhas, were coming along, but they hadn't arrived as yet. But that was a, a another brigade that was coming along later. Two, so two battalions of paratroopers, three battalion equivalents of Marines. That that's correct. That that okay. that was the Python strength. Plus, of course, all the, the artillery and engineering support and, uh, and all the rest. There were about 5,000 ground troops in total at that time, taking all, all it all into account. Okay, um, all right. 1,000 Argentine troops who had had two months to prepare positions. Okay, so, so just to give the audience some perspective, you were an attacking force on an island. Yep. So kind of an amphibious sort of campaign, attacking an enemy at a at one to two odds, where yep. whereas the doctrinal requirement for an attacker in in order to succeed is usually three to one, and that does not include amphibious operations, which you would, you know, if you look at D Day, it was probably much higher than that ratio, at least. Yeah, uh, Amer Americans, Canadians, and Brits to Germans at the time. Okay, so that's so the Brits are attacking at one to two odds on an island with with subarctic temperatures, heading into winter. And did the, did the paratroopers the paratroopers did, did they do any like drops or anything like that on the island? No, it was um, okay. It was it was purely uh, coming in by. Drops in high winds onto an island. Depend, not 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 a great idea. I I, I, I didn't think so, but I didn't want to. You know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to presume yes, because no, no, there have been many they, dumb they, things they, that have happened, right? Like, okay, um, uh, and landed. So once we'd got our um, kit ready uh, and all the stuff we needed, we started moving from one side of the island towards the other on foot. Um, on, on, on foot, carrying all that we needed. We started off with about carrying about 120 pounds of equipment because there was a helicopter shortage. That There weren't enough helicopters to supply what we needed. There weren't any trucks that, that could work. So if we wanted it, we carried it. It's that simple. The, the helicopters were busy shifting artillery around because the only way the artillery could move was being picked up by a helicopter and put where it wanted, and artillery shells and all the rest. The the, the foot sloggers got to do their foot slogging. Okay, so so when you first got out of your hole and you had to execute your first movement, how many? My, I mean, this is this is what's weird about. So the American audience is used to miles. The yep. American military audience would be used to kilometers, which is which makes sense, right? Because everything's divisible by ten. It's easier to bracket your artillery when you could just do that math. But it sounds like the British military at the time, you guys are still using like the the the, the mile system and things like that, right? Yes. Yeah, so okay. Uh, Let's talk we, in miles. Let's talk in miles. miles. Okay. Uh, so your first movement, like how far was it? And at like what period did you move at night? Were you moving oh, during we the moved day? At night. And that's key. That's key because people are thinking daytime, and there's reasons that you would only move at night. Okay, so yeah, you're, but, you're you're walking through effectively a peat bog in semi-arctic conditions. You're carrying a kit of how many how many pounds? 120 pounds. 120 pounds. Okay, yeah. so you're carrying a kit of like a a, a small adolescent boy on your back. Through a peat bog, wet conditions, it's raining, sometimes yeah. snowing, at night when it's coldest, going into a subarctic winter. Okay, your first night, how far are you moving? We were doing about a mile an hour. Okay. Uh, right, which upset the people back in Whitehall because they pointed out that Royal Marine 
uh, training, part of the qualifying course is that you can do 30 miles in eight, in eight hours in full kit. Oh, why are, you, why are you only doing one mile an hour? What's going on? Are you all unfit? And fortunately, me and my boys didn't get to hear any of this until after the event. Um, right. Yeah, right. So, well, I mean, it's, it's obviously you have a feat politicians who've never rucked, a, you know, rucked in their entire lives, just sitting there looking at, look, I, I mean, I've dealt with tanks and mud and, you know, like in, in even in, in training, it's in rural Kentucky, this red clay that just infests everything. It, it, it gets, it gets in your head. Like it, it's not even. When you there's no there's no threat, right? But you know, even in kind of thirty you know, thirty degrees Fahrenheit kind of conditions, where it's cold and it's wet, and and the mud just gets into everything, you can't be clean. I'm sorry, I'm probably bringing you back some some. Memories. Yeah, I'm oh, sorry, <laughs> but it just it gets in your head. So I, I don't I can't quite convey to the audience, and and I. And you, you, and you can't quite convey to me either, because it's unless you've been through it, it's hard to to grasp and to fully because you're feeling like I'm feeling the mud in my gut when you're talking about it. But yeah. I'm not I didn't even deal with the entire other dimension that there were aircraft overhead. And by the way, I didn't mention you were doing this at night at night. And at the time, did you even have night vision yet? Was that even invented? Night vision, night vision goggles were around. We didn't have them. I figured I figured it'd be something like that. We were relying on the Mark One. Okay, so so you're probably again. That's why you have the mud, you have the cold, you have the 120 pounds on your back, and you're moving at night without night vision goggles. So you're probably you probably have some like you're probably red flashlights. You're using like red flashlights at the time. No, I mean uh, just just starlight, moonlight. It's good enough. And you're just like literally probably within an arm's length of the guy in front of you. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get too too close because Bunched up, right? if they slow down, you bump into them. And if you bump into them, you fall over and there's much swearing and imprecations going on. So you keep uh, a couple of yards between you and the chap in front. You hope, well, you assume that the guy right at the front is going in the right direction. You frequently make comments to the effect of you're, you're going the wrong way. Are you moving again? Another another important question. I'm asking the questions that most people who've never done this kind of stuff would ask, right? So I can't imagine there's a lot of infrastructure or roads in the, the place where you landed. So you probably have to use ravine. Like what terrain are you moving through? Oh, peat bogs. It's you. You've got three bits of terrain in the Falklands. You have the peat bog, which is the majority of it. You have the mountains, which basically stick up out of peat bogs, and you have the tended area where the sheep villages and the like are, where you've got the the tracks between the villages. But most of the the, the vast majority of what we was walking on was peat bog. It led later on to the problem of trench foot, because of course I was thinking exactly that. That was my that was going to be yeah. my next my next question. Uh, yeah. And the service issue boots weren't very good. Speak to anyone in my generation and say the word boots to them, you'll get a emotional response. They leaked. It's just surprising because I mean the the we're we're you know just Britain. Right, in England, like it's 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 not it's not a dry place. <laughs> like no, you would think, you would but, think that uh, would be one thing that you, l- that the Brits would have luckily, solved. Luckily, people in my troop, we had all bought our own boots that were secure, that were good. We made sure that there was one of the last things I did before leaving England was to buy up a whole bunch of extra boots just in case. Decent boots, so that my people would have boots that didn't leak. At the, at the time, what was your rank, and how many people were you? I, I was a lieutenant, an officer. Okay, 
Sheila yeah, Platoon. Uh, junior officer. I, I, I started off being, uh, when I joined up, I was an ordinary Marine. I made it up to sergeant. If I'm honest, I was happiest at sergeant. A uh, couple of years before all this kicked off, I, I'd been commissioned and become an officer. So I was a fairly elderly lieutenant at the grand old age of 29. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure your men appreciated it, though, having had the experience and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay, so... But, um, but yes, so anyway, to get back to the uh, story, there we were trundling along from the west side of the island towards the east side of the island. Mount Kent uh, came along. The, 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 the first action was at Goose Green, which was a para thing, which was off to the south. It was no, tough, No right? one ever really knows why Goose Green. It would have been so much simpler just to leave a screen, small screening force there. It was out of the way. It was miles from anywhere. It was doing nobody any harm. And the only thing we can think of why Goose Green was that people wanted a victory back home. And it was the, you know, you're, nothing's happening. Let's do something. That's the only reason we can think of that makes any sort of sense. The um, U.S. military did stupid, stupid stuff like that at the very beginning of the, but, the um, you know, in Afghanistan. So I, I totally get it. Yeah, but it was, but, it was like, like that was a rough day for the, for the Paris, wasn't it? It was, yes. It was 13, I think it was, killed doing it, including the colonel of the unit. It, it was a tough one. They had to, basically, it was on an, they had to cross a very narrow isthmus to get to the her position. So they couldn't flank or spread out or do anything. It was all they could do was a frontal assault through this narrow thing. Once they got past that, they could then do flanking movers and basically take out the strong points one by one. But until that, they were screwed. But which was why I still wonder what on earth was going through the Dratch's head at the time, because, as I say, there was nothing there. Well, it sounds but, like there was uh, enemy there. It sounds like there was enemy there. So yeah, but they weren't going anywhere. They weren't going to be able to do anything. Yeah, if they're there, leave them there. Keep them yeah. cooped up. But I'm not a general, so there was obviously bigger bigger minds than mine that worked out why it was a good thing. We got to uh, Mount Kent. The SAS, our special forces, reconnoitred Mount Kent and reported back that it was empty. Those last words. Yes, <laughs> tell me about it. So there were a couple of helicopters that were in the vicinity. They diverted the helicopters to the nearest troops, which happened to be my troop. So we all piled into these two helicopters. There was 35 of us in two helicopters rated for 10 people and basically flew to land on Mount Kent to make sure that we had a presence there because it was because the SAS had reported it empty. Imagine our surprise when it wasn't. There were, were in actual fact, a half battalion of Argentine troops there, which... 250 was, men? 250 no, men? No, 250 like men. There were 35 of us. Fortunately, they assumed that helicopters coming towards them were... Friendly. Were Argentine, were friendly. They didn't worry too much. When they saw that it was, was enemy troops, they did the sensible thing from our point of view, which was turn and run. I think they thought that this was the start of something big and not that this was all of us. But, uh, but by bluff and good judgment, we, we uh, took the mount. Did, did anyone resist or did the whole, the whole half battalion retreat? 
they, they basically ran. We, we took a number of prisoners from it of people who were basically asleep and didn't wake up in time. But by the time they're sort of get, getting up and getting boots on, you don't run anywhere in the Falklands without boots. It was that the, they, they were looking at the wrong end of a gun and um, decided that surrender was a sensible option at this point. But most of them just turned and ran. By the way, going back to terrain, were there were there trees? Was it wide open? Like what? Scrub bushes, basically. Those horrible little thorn bushes were the most common size. So basically, you're walking around, you're picking this crap out of your arms and like legs, these thorns, there's mud everywhere, you smell like a goat, you're just cranky, it's cold, it's raining. Okay, sorry, I just want to reestablish, because we're losing some of that, we're losing some of that. Yeah, so anyway, we'd taken uh, Mount Kent. The special author service, our special air service, had got back to base and they filed their report there. And, of course, that's the report that got accepted. So if you read up about Mount Kent on Wikipedia, the story is the version that they gave, which was effectively they'd driven them off and we took possession over from them. Um, wait, wait, so the SAS... Claims right. that they that they drove the battalion half battalion yeah, off the, the, the hill, yes, even though yes. they reported there was nothing there. Having reported that there was nothing there, the report got modified to they drove them off, and then we came along and took over from them. And it, it's a whole bunch of lies, but they got their report in first, and so that's the official version. Gentle reader, <sighs> the moral of this story is that the that the that official histories aren't necessarily always one hundred percent accurate. Wow. But, but yeah, see, a few of the quality of the SAS in my troop went markedly down at this point. We we sort of had a low opinion to that which the public generally has of their exceptional professionalism. But, you know, they're, they're the most highly trained authors around, so... Okay, so so you seize Mount Kent, then what? We've we taken Mount Kent, which, to set the scene, it's a, it's a isolated mountain in the middle of a large plain, so whoever controls Mount Kent can see dominate uh, the area. We were relieved from there a short while later by a detachment of Gurkhas, which, oh, always nice to meet Gurkhas in the field. They're wonderful folk to have on your side. Mm. But uh, like probably the best soldiers in the world, right? Light infantry, yeah. They have their uh, limitations because of the educational system back in Nepal. When it comes to Dealing with complex technology, not so great, simply because they don't have the the, the the educational background that people in the West growing up familiar with. Tough as nails, happy, brave as a lion. Uh, they tend to be fairly straight line. If you give them an order, they will carry it out. They won't, to the they won't necessarily say, no, that's completely stupid, we're not going to do that. If you want say, there's a machine gun nest, three of you charge, they'll cheerfully do that. That sounds like U.S. Marines. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, U.S. Marines. Uh, that's, a, that's the U.S. Marines. Okay. But we rejoined our uh, commando and moved on. The next phase of the battle, there's a ring of hills overlooking Stanley itself. There's three separate peaks, uh, two there. Stanley Um, being the main city. Stanley is the main city. It is now, it it was made this uh, year, it's officially now a city. God knows it's a a city of about 1,800 people, which is, it's barely bigger than a village, but, you know, but Stanley is the main settlement in there, more than half the population of the Falklands live there. So we, we were coming to the mountains that overlooked that. Longdon, Twin Sisters and Harriet, um, running from north to south. 
there. So the next phase of the battle uh, of the campaign was to take these three positions, which were to be done at night. Now, how did you how did you get from Mount Kent to your next spot? Did you we did you walk? Yeah. <laughs> you only get to use the helicopter when they fly you into danger into an occupied mountain. I got it. Yeah, uh, helicopters were precious, all the more so because a lot of reinforcement helicopters were coming down south on the Atlantic conveyor, which had got hit by an exocet and sunk. And so most of the helicopter support that was coming was lost at sea. And, and for, for the audience that's not familiar with weaponry, it's an exocet missile, right? Yes, an, an, ex, uh, an, an anti-ship missile launched anti-ship missile, hit, hit, hit Atlantic conveyor and it sank, taking with it the helicopters come, that were coming to help us with our logistics. Now, at, at, at this point in time, did you, had you lost any men, either injury or trench foot or anything like that? We'd had we'd had one injury there. It was walking wounded. Uh, he was staying with us. We hadn't suffered any loss of firepower, but we did. He he, he had a, a a shoulder wound, which meant that he couldn't fire the anti anti tank missiles that we were carrying. The Milan early version javelins, but because of his bad shoulder, he couldn't fire it. And I I still think that he did it deliberately to get out of carrying the damn thing. <laughs> but how did he hurt his shoulder? It just it is it, just. Not the enemy, not no from enemy idea. action. I, I've no idea how he how he did it. It was it wasn't a bullet wound. Um, it could have been anything. To be honest, when bullets are flying, you tend not to notice too much, other than what you immediately need to notice. Some he went down. He got back up again. Whether it hurt his shoulder in the falling, whether it something had bounced off his uh, shoulder, uh, a ricochet or something. I don't think he knows. Okay. Uh, All right, so 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 you're still a hundred, relatively more close or less to hundred percent, but with a lot more, a uh, lot more to complain about. To get to Mount Kent, how long? How many days had you been traveling? It was two and a half weeks to Mount Kent, and then another three days to the mountains around Stanley. So we've so, been going for about three weeks now. So how how many miles did you travel to get to Mount Kent? It's about 50 miles. Okay. Um, at night. Okay. And then the next movement, you said it was about a week, a few days, something like that? Uh, about three days to get there. Now, Mount Harriet was right on, our objective was going to be Mount Harriet. And at this point, I should probably mention that Throughout the time, the Marines and Paras, we weren't wearing helmets, we were wearing berets. The reason for this being was that in the night, the identification of the uh, working out friend from enemy, time was critical. The decision had been made, if, we were wear if it was wearing a beret, it was one of ours, and if it wasn't, it was one of theirs. So in order to ease up identification, we were wearing berries. The Argentinians weren't aware of this. So if they saw a figure, they first had to try and work out if it was Argentine or British. We could tell simply from the shape of the head whether it was Argentine or British. So we, we, were, we were wearing our berries. And to be honest, any Marine is incredibly proud of having their, their berries. So it was no great hardship to do so, but it, it, it made the shape of the head distinctive. Anyway, Mount Harriet is right, was right on the southern edge. We'd seen an Argentine patrol come out uh, from there. It passed through a minefield. There, there were lots of minefields laid about, and we watched it taking the safe route through the minefield which meant that we now knew a safe route through the minefield, which enabled us to get from the, fr gave us a route to get from the front of there to the flank, flank rear. So 
basically rather than attacking straight, heading straight eastwards into the main defences, we were able to send two companies right round to the south so that we could have actually approach heading northwest into the rear flank of them. So we were able to get into a position to take the the island. We had one troop making a lot of noise to the west while the other two troops mo- moved right round the side, which it took a night to, to get into position. And then we had to hole up for the day and not be seen for that day. But it meant that we would be coming from a totally unexpected direction, which, which we, the next night, the attack went in. It, it was, I have no idea how long the attack took. It's one of those that you move, you see um, a strong point, you find a way of dealing with the strong point, either by calling in gunfire support from the uh, brigade that's positioned there, or uh, emptying your, your anti-tank weapons at them, or whatever. But effectively, the way we'd move forward, see a locate a strong point, s- stop behind a rock, have a cigarette, work out how we were would, would deal with it, deal with it, move on to the next one. Clearing bunkers, just the old, yeah, you know, yeah. like check for frat wire. Toss in a grenade and then go around the side, shoot whatever's left. Like just old yeah. school infantry tactics. It, right. It's basically it, it's very old school. People uh, from the Pacific Islands in in the Second World War would have recognised exactly what we uh, were doing. That they would the the U.S. Marines from there. Yeah, they would. Yeah, yeah, been there, done that. We were doing exactly the same thing in. Colder conditions than they were used to, but basically exactly the same thing. Luckily for us, the Argentine forces were—they were brave. They were—they were fight, but they were incredibly inexperienced and very mm. poorly led. They, there's been a lot of there was a lot of comment about how they were cowards and all the rest of it. Nonsense. They—they they were perfectly brave. They just I mean, they were conscripts. Some of them had been in the army six months or so. This was the first time that they hadn't even been on exercises to do things. This was all brand new. You know, our guys had been trained. A lot of them had been through uh, the troubles in Ireland, had, had, had been in situations where there was a chance that you'd get... Doing it for real is the only way of getting used to doing it for real. And you training is absolutely essential because as soon as things happen for real, your brain stops working, you start doing, you, you default to what you've been trained to do. Muscle memory. Uh, and right. if, you ha- if you haven't been trained to do anything, you, your, your brain stops working and you, 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 you're, you're puzzling around for long enough that it, it, it's all over by the time you've worked out what you should do. So training is utter, was, was utterly, utterly key to that. And, of course, doing it all at night exacerbates the difference between trained and untrained. When, it, when it's night time, when explosions are going off, when your officer is screaming nonsense, it just falls apart. We took Mount Harriet. We we had two dead and thirteen injured doing it. Well, at the time we took two dead and twelve injured. As soon as we cleared Mount Harriet, of course the Argentinians knew exactly where it was. It was one of their places, so they knew the the location to the meter to the yard. And they had artillery back in Stanley. So as soon as they worked out that they'd lost Mount Harriet, they started uh, shelling it, which was at about the time when I was making sure that my boys were all safely undercover. 
okay, right, this was where I forgot to duck, and an artillery shell went off fairly close to me. That was the end of my interest in the Falklands War. I was bad, badly injured from that point and got uh, as a fact, a hel- got a helicopter ride all the way. Yeah, I was about to ask, to ask, like, how did you get out of there? Thank yeah. God they sent a helicopter, right? Yeah, um, helicopters had a priority, artillery shells forward, casualties backwards, anything else took potluck. But yeah, they, they it was well known that the quicker you can get a casualty to a place where it can be treated, the better. As I say, I was fairly badly injured at that time. Got back to San Carlos Bay, where the initial aid station was. Nurse was there uh, patching me up. Now, by this time, I was completely uh, dosed up to the eyeballs with morphine as a painkiller, and I wasn't really paying any attention to much of what was going on. But I'm told that I, I had dry socks for my troop in my uh, pockets and pack, and I was insistent that they had to give the socks to my troops, you know, in, in that sort of state, and to focus on one thing, as the, you grasp yeah. one thing and you stick with it like a, like a bulldog with its teeth in. And yeah, dry socks, my people, please, that way. The nurse was at, apparently quite impressed that he'd been the condition that I was. I was thinking of my men. She helped, helped with the patching up of me. It was at this point that I realised that she was a she, and this was unusual. Hadn't seen a, a woman for, for the last month and a half, so what with trudging all over the island. And there, she was told that I was then helicoptered over to the SS Uganda, which was the designated hospital ship. She was told told to basically accompany me to make sure that my inside stayed inside and didn't fall over and basically make sure that I got to the operating theatre on Uganda. Got there, the surgeons did their stuff as, as best they could. One of the injuries... I'd had was a bit of shrapnel had gone in the front and had lodged in my spine. So they had to cut out sort of seven feet of intestine and then sew the ends back together. And, and so you basically the, had an abdominal and a spinal wound. Yeah, basically it like went the, in the front and lodged in the back, which was no fun. If it had happened 20 years over, I'd have been a goner. Medicine had advanced to the stage that it could be dealt with. The spinal one, it was lodged in the spine. Apparently, they well, they said that they could try and take it out, but that gave a chance of cutting the spinal cord, or they could just fuse the two spinal elements around it and lock it in place there. So we went for that. And so I- there's still a bullet in your spine. Yeah, fragment of metal. It's uh, it's quite useful insofar as I could, I now know when there's high security at an airport because I set off the metal detectors when they're at their most sensitive. It, uh, what kind of rounds did the Argentines use? Was it were they using M16s? Were they using AK47s? Uh, they, they, they were using exactly the same uh, sort of weapons that we were using, uh, 7.62, but. Uh, as I say, that that wasn't it wasn't a bullet. It was a fragment, very fragmentary shell, and I've no idea what size it was. But while they were operating on me, the nurse had stayed to make sure that I was that I came out of surgery. While they were operating on me, uh, Uganda set sail back home for there. So there was I stuck on uh, Uganda got talking to the nurse. She made sure that the first meal that I got was onion soup. The reason for this being, we talked about it and she'd said that back in the uh, days, uh, Vikings, if a Viking had an abdominal wound, they'd feed him onion soup. And then after uh, feeding it, they'd sniff around the intestine. If they smelt onion, the intestine had been ruptured and had come out, and there, there was they were going to die. And if there was no onion smell, the intestine had remained intact, and so they would live. 
she'd explained all this and we'd, we'd talked about that. And so she made sure that the first meal I got was onion soup um, <laughs> for there, which appealed to my sense of humour. And long story short, by the time the ship reached England, we were engaged. That's a great story. And, and are you still still married? Unfortunately, she died back in 2002, oh, breast cancer. But we, we had 20 wonderful years together. That's a so, beautiful story, uh, my friend. So, yeah, but Mills and Boone rejected it for some reason. They said it was unrealistic. I, I've done a, a couple of stories for Mills and Boone. I proposed this one as a plot line for them, but they said, nah, um, we don't. No, this is. Too, so, yeah, my, my, the story of Alison and I getting together is too unrealistic, even for Mills and Boone. Well, usually life imitates art, right? Like this is uh, the whole stranger than fiction sort of story. Of, you know, oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. f- fiction has to make sense. Real life, real life doesn't necessarily need to do so. But uh, no, but that I mean, that's like a that's like a picture perfect Hollywood sort of that, ending where you're just that, like, come on, I, come on, that can't be. Put, no way, no way that happened. But yes, it's it, it was so it was so perfect. But yeah, so lost seven feet of intestine, gained a back wound and a wife. So you know that was my Falklands War. Oh, well, that I mean, that was a fantastic story. So thank you, David. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Lovely. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.